Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I have Asaf Thronin rejoining me. Uh, Asaf is associate producer of the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival coming to Austin in, uh, was it Labor Day weekend this year? Yeah, Labor Day weekend, seven days. Uh, Asaf, thanks so much for taking time out of your Sunday to join me. Um, you know, I went back and listened to our first episode and I forgot how much I loved talking to you oh. that time around. I remember... You know, I can remember thinking back on it, leaving that feeling really great because I feel like we connected <laughs> on so many things like comic books and just, I think, a shared love mm-hmm. of storytelling and losing ourselves in stories. Yes. So going back and listening to that was kind of a real treat. And I don't know if you're like me, but I, I kind of cringe when I go back and listen to myself oh, yeah. talk. Especially I avoid over... it completely, so I haven't <laughs> listened to it. So. But yeah, it was it was definitely a good one. So that was it was cool to uh, to go back and experience that because I don't think I had listened to it. So right here we are. I think that was my thirteenth episode of the show, and now I'm this is actually fifty three today. Wow! <laughs> so forty conversations since then uh-huh. feels crazy, but it's it's great to have you back. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, uh, just because I think it's you know there's a lot of overlap there. I think in terms of interests and and so forth. So right. Sure. <laughs> Let's do it. Number 53. Where do we begin? <laughs> right. So I think the last time we spoke, you had mentioned you were, you were working on a lot of stuff. You had, mm. you know, you had the Out of Bounds Festival coming up because I think we had, we actually spoke, I think, August 1st of last year. Oh, okay. So, so almost we're all, a year almost a year and here we are, come, the festival's coming up again. Yeah. I guess let's, we can start there. That'd probably be a good place to to jump off and sure. you know talk about what's going on this year, what you're excited about, maybe you know I, I'll, you're free to take the hand off and, and run. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always excited about the festival. The festival's the reasons I moved to Austin. It was my only exposure to Austin prior to me moving here six months later. So uh, I have a very deep fondness for it. I'm very happy to be part of the creative team behind it now education director of the festival, as well as one of the associate producers. Uh, Some of the things I'm excited about, I'm not at liberty to talk about yet. We have some headliners, which I'm excited to have come, uh, but we haven't announced those yet. I don't know when the timing is going to be of that announcement. But I think one of the great things about the festival every year is the sheer variety. We're a very, we're not moon tower. We're We're a very grassroots kind of comedy festival. And we focus on diversity and a wide range of voices from a wide range of uh, playgrounds, as opposed to, well, here are just the big names from L.A., New York, Chicago, etc. So for me, it's more the whole festival, you know, all together that excites me. Yeah, because you guys, if I remember correctly, are doing it's there's some sketch element, there's some improv, stand-up, yeah. a number of different venues. We'll have some podcast recordings. Uh, we'll have some variety shows that don't kind of fit into any one particular bubble. So, yeah. Nice. Uh, in, t- in terms of logistics, like what what's the location like? What are we... Um, tickets are still available, I'm sure. Well, we're about to put badges on sale. You can get okay. a badge for only 99 bucks on the early bird. I don't know when this is going to air. If that early bird's still going to... Yeah, we'll, we'll have it out Tuesday morning, so... Oh, or wait, yes. maybe Monday, actually. No, I'll do it. I'll have it out tomorrow morning, right. actually. Well, either way, it'll <laughs> still be available for $99. Uh, and we have seven different stages. 
Yeah, I think so. So there's the Fallout Theater, the Hideout Theater, the Institution Theater, Cold Town Theater, Spider House Ballroom, Velveeta Room. Uh, we have two stages at Hideout. So, yeah, it's it's massive. Nice. It's a huge undertaking. How many, so how many performers would you... Over 500. Over 500 performers. And that's across, again, improv, stand-up, sketch. Yeah. XYZ. Yeah. Whatever the case may be. Yeah. Okay. So so that's a big project, obviously probably taking up quite a bit of your time. Surprisingly, no. No, it's a a smooth (laughs) running machine at this point. We've got a great team. So um, I think... (laughs) I, I long ago learned that the best managers are redundant, and I very much subscribe to that. So <laughs> I, I kind of give oversight, but a lot of the the legwork is done by people who know how to do it far more efficiently than I do. And I just tie it together. And then I put together the workshops and other stuff like that, design elements I work on. Nice. But yeah, it's not – it's it's a massive project, but not a huge workload, surprisingly. <laughs> nice. That's a – it's a nice little, uh, that you don't hear that often. So. Yeah. Well, it's been 17 <laughs> years. We've got it down to a fine science at this point. Gotcha. So you're doing some educational sessions? Is that? Yeah. We have a lot of people who are coming in from out of town who are also going to be teaching. Um, folks from uh, Chicago. We have the artistic director from UCBLA, Beth Appel, who's coming and she's going to teach. Uh, I think a group from Chicago, Geico, is going to be teaching some classes. We'll see. Um, A lot of good friends like Will Luera, who uh, runs a theater out in Sarasota, Florida, is going to be teaching. We're even going to have a Spanish-speaking improv class. So that's that's a new new venture. We're trying to expand, widen the net. Right on. Uh, So... What's the what kind of classes are we talking about? Uh, just you know, you just mentioned improv. Obviously, what is that the primary focus, or is there some stand up and other types of? We've tried different types of classes: sketch classes, stand up classes. The improv classes have been the only ones that are consistently strong. I think for one offs, because truthfully, I think cl- festival classes are a luxury item at this point. If you got the money to throw away on it, not right. that we're very expensive or anything like that. But for a one-off, you can get a lot out of an improv class, less so out of a sketch or stand-up class where you want the reps in right. order to really get something out of it, I think. So uh, improv, because you kind of learn in the moment and you get up there a few times and learn each time you get up there, um, it's a lot more beneficial for the students. But it took a little while for us to learn things like that. Right on. you got to pay attention to uh, the feedback. So gotcha. that was some of the feedback. Right on. Um, you know, it's it's funny actually that you mentioned that because I, I've really, really been thinking about doing an open mic night or something like that. I don't know. I've been listening to a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, but there's a, kind of a defunct now podcast that was The Champs. It was Moshe Kasher mm-hmm. and uh, Neil Brennan. Oh, love Neil Brennan. Did yeah. a podcast together and they would have, uh, it was primarily like black or black culture related guys on and just, Really, really great conversation. Just pretty funny. It's, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the knowledge that both of those guys have in terms of just being stand-ups, but also, you know, being involved in TV production and mm-hmm. things like that. The conversations that they had with, like, the Wayans brothers or, like, Arsenio came on, Chris mm-hmm. Rock. Some just really great stuff. I've always been interested in being, as you know, doing stand-up since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, like, at the point where I'm, I'm just, I'm right on that edge of where I'm kind of ready to, like, 
maybe dip my toe into that. Do you have any advice for me? Um, other than just do it? <laughs> yeah. What are you worried about? I, I'm primarily worried. I mean, obviously, I think getting up in front of people, you know, that's like one of the biggest fears for anybody, right? Why? Public speaking. It's just something, something about it. If you're not, I think, you know, if you're not used to it, it's just that natural like fear reaction of, like, mm -hmm. oh no, I, I could be rejected by this group. I don't know. There's something about that that is right. unsettling to people. And, you know, I definitely fall into that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, what I kind of worry about personally is, is my, is my material going to be broad enough? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh God, no, I see. <laughs> All right. So you're worried way too much about the audience <laughs> that you haven't met yet. Right. Like if you were in front of a group of 40 people, and this is something I talk about with my improv students all the time, whenever they worry about being funny and will the audience get it and all that stuff. Um, if you had a group of 40 people and asked them what their favorite comedy movie is, I mean, how many different answers do you think you're going to get in a group of 40 people? Right. Yeah. Right. You're going to get, Step Brothers, just as easily as you're going to get Airplane, just as easily as you're going to get some far more obscure, right. you know, That's true. whatever. Um, we all know what we like, but we don't all necessarily like the same things. But right. it doesn't mean we're not open to all things to like that, too. You just got to be yourself. I mean, there isn't that much difference between talking with a group of 40 people and just you and me talking right now, or at least it doesn't have to be that much different. Right. Right. It's all just a part of self-expression. You're expressing yourself. Don't try to express what you think the audience is going to go along. True. You have no fucking clue. <laughs> right. And, you know, um, and that's where improv comes in a little bit. I mean, you're going to test, uh, you're going to test a theory as to what would be fun for an audience to hear. And then you'll adjust on the fly as it goes based on the, the response, but you got to go in with a strong idea of what you want to talk about, not what they want to hear. Right. I guess it makes sense. That brings up an interesting question that I've been thinking about lately is, and I, I don't want to get too into politics, but oh, <laughs> I mean, I. I, you know, we can't, it's unavoidable to some degree, but it's like, I feel like the climate that we're in is, I don't, and I, maybe I'm just, it's just me, but it feels so absurd that where, how do you even, how do you do comedy <laughs> in this moment where everything feels, already feels like it's a parody of itself to some degree? You know what I mean? Um, I feel like you do it more imperatively than ever. I mean, it's, yeah, I agree that it, it's definitely like we need comedy right now really bad. <laughs> yeah. I think comedy is a great way to process a lot that's going on right now. I have to admit that I've kind of, gone on a little bit of a blackout, media blackout. And one of the thing, one of the windows that I use into what's going on in the world are various comedy shows that deal with politics. So, you know, Last Week Tonight, right. John Oliver, and Real Time with Bill Maher, and Samantha Bee, and all these things are just kind of, I mean, it's a way that I can take it in <laughs> more comfortably <laughs> right now, because otherwise I get deeply affected by it. Yeah. I just get depressing. Right. I, I mean, I ran into that same thing. I stopped watching even, this was years ago, I stopped, kind of retreated from politics kind of totally and to where I wouldn't even watch, you know, The Daily Show mm -hmm. or back when Colbert was doing The Colbert Report. It's like I totally, even that, I just could not even, <laughs> couldn't even handle that much. Yeah. 
I understand that. So now I wonder, or so are you still kind of involved in doing any um, improv classes at the moment? Or are you? Uh, currently, I'm on a little bit of a hiatus, and we'll see um, when I come out of that and what that's going to look like. I've been focusing a lot more on my other job, uh, working in a nonprofit, and I've been getting a lot out of that. Um, I've also been looking at touring a bit more. I went to Portland and taught at my friend uh, Stacy Halal's Theater, Curious Comedy, out in Portland, and did some shows there, and that was fun. So right now I've kind of shifted away from just doing it regularly to doing it more purposefully, you know? Yeah, a focused effort. Yeah. I was just kind of wondering... If you know, if you've kind of had noticed any change in the way those improv like was shaking out in terms of the classes, like the types of humor, or if like you notice any sorts of trends going on over the course of time, Ugh. does anything kind of stand out in that in that regard? I mean, oof. in general, it's really interesting to see what's going on because, of course. You can't talk about comedy these days without talking about the political correctness issue and where is the line and when do you cross it? Is there a line to even cross? What does that look like? Um, And how, boy, there's just a lot of apologies from comedians lately, you know? So, I mean, I think that's... That's kind of the trend. You kind of see little ripples of that, of either people really pushing it or people really kind of going as far away from that as possible. Like, clearly, this is all just frivolous kind of stuff, I think. Interesting. I need to get out there more, though. Right. Yeah, I'd be interested. I'm not that up on the scene. You know, I don't watch a lot of specials or anything, but, you know, here and there I do. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of big ones that come out, but it's not something I've really kept my finger on the pulse of. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do listen to Joe Rogan's, his podcast quite a bit. Obviously, I think he's really immersed in that whole backlash against the political correct culture. Yeah. And I'm sure it's, a you know what I mean? I think when you're a comedian, it's probably a little more personal to you just because it feels like that's been such a part of comedy in, in some degree is like sending up kind of these stereotypes and you know what I mean? But now there's so much, like you said, backlash and, right. you know, people are, I think being a lot more conscious about what they're saying or either that, or they're rebelling against like this, what feels like a, this oppressive PC culture to them. But you know, at right. this, I'm kind of like, eh, it's like from the comedian standpoint, it's like, I kind of understand that like the idea is to push boundaries, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there has to be some amount of respect and and awareness of, you know, these sort of, you know, making fun of people that are different. You know what I mean? I don't know. There's just, yeah, it's you a difficult avoid, line to draw. You want to avoid punching down, but you also want to present something new. And the thing, a big part of comedy is being allowed to fuck it up. Yeah. You're going to fuck it up quite a few times on the way to finding, oh, this is the way this is supposed to be told. This is This is the truest form of what I'm trying to get across. But we're not allowed to fuck it up anymore without huge repercussions at times. So, yeah. What do you think? Do you have any kind of? Have you ever thought about sort of the theory of comedy as far as sure what make like what is a fundamental? What is it fundamentally composed of? Like, what are some 
er things that are generally funny because I've heard, for example, one is like kind of the unexpected turn is funny. Well, the tension and release. It's all tension and release. I, that's, that's taking it back even simpler, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But just you kind of walk people along. Okay, I'm walking you down this story right. that you kind of know. And then at the end, instead of turning right, I turn left. And you're like, ah. Right. And that's I, amusing. Yeah. There's surprise is funny. Right? It's jarring. It's funny. We naturally respond with, with humor uh, by laughing at stuff. Even in uncomfortable situations, especially in uncomfortable situations. So it's all about creating that tension and then that release, right? Which also ties very much into the political correctness stuff because you have to create a certain amount of tension. Otherwise, you're not really exploring something, right? Um, yeah. Is there any other... I feel like that, that doesn't capture everything though, right? There's got to be some other elements to it, you know what I mean? What do you think? Do you have any? <laughs> Maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree, or I'm going down the wrong path. But. I mean, sure, but like, I think ultimately it all boils down to that, and then the way you tackle that is individual to the person doing the comedy or the group doing the comedy, as far as how that works. I mean, there are other aspects like there's rhythm, there's connection, there's all this stuff. Um, there are different things that people respond to. Um, but that's on a very individual basis as to how that applies. Ultimately, it's about tension release, setup, joke, right? Yeah. It's both the same thing. Setup and joke and tension and release is the same thing. I guess there are different methods, though, to achieve that or to, you know what I mean, to put that framework on. Like some people are storytellers. Sure. And their storytelling is more, you know what I mean? It's not so much like this setup, setup punchline mm -hmm. necessarily, but... I don't know, it's more loose, organic way that they approach it versus somebody that can come out and just kind of, I don't know, I feel, is it, maybe is, is somebody like Mitch Hedberg that's kind of doing more like a, you know what I mean? They're kind of bouncing yeah. around instead of telling like a, necessarily a, a narrative right. sort of story. I mean, <laughs> Mitch Hedberg is such a particular type. Right. And, um, you know, and if you look at any of the jokes that would kind of defy the idea of tension and release but it, <laughs> but if you look at him as a persona and i think that's the brilliance of mitch hedberg his persona is one of tension right he's just so odd right he's cut from the same cloth that previously like emo phillips was or uh bobcat goldthwaite or all these things of like what is this who is this person right so that anything that comes out of their mouth tends to be a, a bit surprising and i think that was the case with yeah, Mitch true. Hedberg. Um, yeah. And then the delivery style was always very surprising, the way he would kind of phrase things. Um, I mean, one of my favorite jokes of his was about him buying a donut. It's yeah. such a simple thing. <laughs> bought a donut for 49 cents and they gave him a receipt. Right? And it, was, it was the punchline. It was like, don't tell me I didn't buy the donut. I have the documentation. And, you know, and there was something like the way he said just that. Like just like that. Yeah, just kind of sending. He was kind of sending up just the what, like, what are we doing? We're, I'm just yeah. buying it. Like, why do I need this paper? It's just kind yeah. of making fun of this whole kind of yeah. system that's built around just this very simple right. transaction. Right. It's so fucking unnecessary. But that's definitely one that I always, I always yeah. think about. When I yeah. think of Mitch Hedberg, it's like that's the first joke or bit that I mm. always come up with. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, cool. There's another thing we have in common. <laughs> um, but yeah, mentioning that receipt though, that makes me laugh too, because I don't know if you've seen any of these memes about like uh, the, uh, like the Walgreens receipts. Mm, no. You know, how every time you go to Walgreens, you end up with a receipt that's like, Oh yeah. Three feet long. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like us on Facebook, give us a review. Right. All these things. It's like, no, transaction's done here. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just needed the shampoo. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need a paper that I've got yes. to recycle or crumple up in my car. Yeah. We do not have a relationship <laughs> beyond this moment. <laughs> That's it. Imagine that you're just kind of rolling around with your car and you've like somebody has an entire back seat full yeah. of Walgreens receipts or something. Yeah. yeah. Just um, madness. Yeah, but I've not seen those memes. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of illiterate when it comes to like memes and keeping up with, with shit like that. Um, it's, not, it's not the media I consume. I consume a lot of TV. I consume a lot of movies, everything else. Podcasts included, <laughs> sorry to say. Uh, I'm not as up on it. just doesn't fit in my life as easily. I yeah, I'm, I'm definitely someone who's extremely online in the sense that I'm always on like Twitter, Instagram, mm -hmm. Reddit. Those are like, I'm always checking that. And of course, those, you know, f that lends themselves very much to mm -hmm. the quick, punchy meme. And then it just, it's, it's so interesting to me, though, um, mm. just the humor of it, just how the absurdity of it um, and just people keep on taking it and running with it. I don't know. Something is there's something going on there that's really interesting to me, right? And just these different iterations on this classic picture. I don't know. It's something that I feel like you could teach a class on studying these internet memory, oh, right. for example. Well, another version of tension release is familiarity. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, good, good call. Right. So, especially these memes getting redone in so many different ways with different. Uh, Oh, there was one meme that I really appreciated. It was that series of stills from what's that reality show? Oh yeah, the uh, like guys. the West, not West. Was it West Coast Choppers? Yeah, something like that. Those two guys arguing. Yes, and people would plug in. <laughs> they would do these yeah different highly intellectual <laughs> conversations. Exactly. Um, yeah, that yeah. was a good one. Yeah, and then there was a meme within that. One of the one of the installments within that meme was kind of meta talking about how stere the stereotype of assuming that biker type guys can't have intellectual conversations, and that was the argument they were having. So, oh, that's perfect. Yeah. So that was a that was a nice twist because at that point, right, it had run its course. We'd seen all these variations of it, but someone came up with that little twist to surprise a little bit further. That was fun. I think my favorite meme of this year has been, I don't know if you saw this, the Mark Zuckerberg testimony in front of Congress <laughs> where he's drinking the water. Uh -huh. Oh my God. I've I not mean, seen the meme. I've seen the oh, testimony. There's been some hilarious riffs on that <laughs> that were just so great. I mean, laugh out loud. I usually, you know, I don't laugh out loud when it comes to memes a lot, unless it's just one that just floors me. And those... I mean, I would like tears, just even repeating the story. I'm kind of wanting to laugh until I cry mm -hmm. at that one because <laughs> he looks so robotic with that glass of water. I don't know, it's just such an iconic photo. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Zuckerberg. 
<laughs> anyway. So what what else has been going on? I think last time we spoke you you were working on a, a novel. Yeah. Have you have you uh, kept up with that? A lot of the writing I was doing I put on the back burner. I've got a screenplay that I'm trying to finish. Uh, I've got essays that I try to write. The novel's on the back burner because that's far too much of an undertaking. <laughs> right. Um, one thing I am working on right now, we're going to be doing a show. My friend Scarlett Alexandra and I are going to be doing a show starting at the end of July called the Slash Fiction Salon. So we're going to be doing readings of slash fiction using comedians, local comedians. So slash fiction, you know. Uh, I'm not that familiar, actually. It's genre-based erotica. Ah. Right? So it's like uh, Harry Potter slash Snape. Ah, okay. Or Kirk slash Spock. These very uh, sexual slash romantic. Nice. It goes different ways. Uh, so we're going to be doing readings. Lots of, of potential those. there, though. I think so. <laughs> that sounds cool. And each show will focus on a different genre. So Got we'll have it. a Harry Potter night. We'll have a Star Trek Next Generation night. Ah. So it's, uh, <laughs> Ooh. What, uh, let's see. Let's... Let's speculate on TNG relationships. I mean, it's going to be Picard and Riker. There's going to be a lot of Picard and Riker. <laughs> Just making date, data. There's lots of. I think there's lots of opportunity for data yeah, to be involved. Probably, probably. And here's the interesting thing. So this is, and this goes back to our conversation of the line and political correctness and all that stuff, and kind of recognizing where the humor should lie. It's a lot harder to do this show if we focus on um, heterosexual pairings. Um, for some reason, an audience is more accepting of the uh, same-sex pairings within this humor realm. But Scarlett and I, were also very, we're trying to make this a very sex-positive show, so we don't ever want the joke to be, oh, and look, they've made these characters gay. I mean, that's not the point. Right. I think the point for me is not that it's Harry Potter and Snape as much as for some reason, and this, believe me, I've done research on this. We've looked at a lot of <laughs> Harry Potter, Snape. <laughs> research. We've done a lot of, yeah, we've read a lot of Harry Potter, Snape uh, slash fiction readings, and most of them feel the need to see them get married in the beginning of the fiction before the sex can happen. <laughs> That somehow that makes it more palatable <laughs> that Snape is sleeping with a former student. So things like that are oh. the things that we're looking at as opposed to just the, the gender dynamics of it. But, it. but it's still harder when you make it because here we are post-Me Too and all that stuff and you can't to, to put stuff out there that could right. be viewed in that way and that, you know, uh, against that backdrop, it's it's a bit of a minefield right now, but that's fine. I mean, yeah. The, one of the things that the conversations that needs to happen in the same time is the political correctness, and I, I believe comedians should figure it out and work it out and and try things. But I also think they sh some t some comedians feel this entitlement of I should be able to talk about this, and it's like okay. If you've actually got something to say about it, sure. 
But don't just kind of throw a rape joke out there and just let that do all the heavy lifting for you. You still got to, you actually got to work harder if you're going to genuinely talk about some of these things, whether it be race, whether it be religion, whether it be sex or anything like that. You know, you can't, you can't be lazy about it, right? So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to not be lazy. We're, we're doing our due diligence because we really want to explore sex positivity in many different ways. And we're kind of using this as the way to do that, right? So I think alongside we get with political correctness, we got to talk a little bit about over entitlement than some people feel of like, no, I should be able to talk about this. No, <laughs> you're not... You, you're not automatically entitled to. You don't have to. You're choosing to. But make sure you're really making the choice that makes sense for you about it. You know? It's like the people who go to do karaoke and they plug in that Kanye West song, even though they're white and they think they're entitled to singing the N-word because it's in the lyrics. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's not the way the world works. Right. All right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> read the room a little bit you know no, <laughs> nobody wants to see that you you saying the n-word is not the same as kanye saying the n-word where he's coming from is much different right and context is everything right yeah. so but sometimes we have that entitlement and that's the thing that happens with why i'm, I'm backed off of social media a little bit and backed off of news a little bit because sometimes there's a little bit too much this feel of entitlement of, no, I should be able to do this. But why? You know? Yeah. When is this going on? Because I feel like I, I'm not much of a Harry Potter person, but oh. I think the Star Trek stuff. I, <laughs> I mean, Kirk and Spock in particular, there's some, that sounds really entertaining. I don't have the exact dates yet, and I have to set up the Facebook page for it. Um, but we'll be announcing it. Look for Slash Fiction salon on facebook and we'll have dates about that the first one's going to be a catch-all lots of different genres and then we haven't mapped out exactly what um what genres we're going to do for all the subsequent shows but it'll be once a month nice yeah, yeah. i'll definitely have to come check that out that yeah, sounds like it's up it my alley <laughs> yeah um it's funny i was actually was watching an interview with um I forget what the actress's name was, but she played Deanna Troy on on The Next Generation. Um, Maria Sikris? Something like that. Something like that, yeah. But she was she's quite entertaining. Uh-huh. She has some good stories. Oh, Should, really? Yeah, ch- check it out on YouTube. Just like she speaks at conventions and you know cons and and what have you. Yeah. But she's pretty entertaining. Talking about like the outfit that they made her wear and mm-hmm. all this stuff, and she's very. Right. Um, she kind of reminds me actually of her mother in the show who was more like free spirited or whatever that it wasn't, it was like Gene Roddenberry's wife, like his actual wife remember. or something. There was some kind of tie in there to where Boy. her mother was very like, I need to brush over. She TNG, was, clearly. she was overtly sexual and there was, she was always kind of like picking at Picard because he's just, you know, so up, uptight. And mm-hmm. so there was a really hilarious dynamic between those two. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that character. But she kind of came across, she was much more in the show, kind of closed, closed up, but, mm-hmm. because of, but in real life, she was kind of the opposite. It was kind of interesting to see that kind of dynamic shift. Mm-hmm. You kind of think, oh, yeah, I've, I've watched this person for like 10 years. I know something about them. But no, you don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, 
Can you imagine living that life of a sci-fi? That's got to be horrible, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, there are some people that really lean into it and maneuver through it and excel at it. I mean, Will Wheaton is fine. Yeah, you know? that's true. I mean, it's how everybody knows him. He's kind of really embraced that geek status and and used it because he enjoys that world. So, but sometimes you see these comic cons and here's that person who's known for that first and foremost. And even though they might've done other things, they're just not known for it. And it's hard to break out of that. It's just really interesting to me how, um, how the casting process in Hollywood can be where then you could just get pigeonholed in that. Right. I have a close friend who, uh, turned down a role in the Metal Star Galactica reboot because he wanted to have a far more expansive uh, repertoire to his name than, than doing that and being at Comic-Cons and all that right, stuff. Right, for the rest of your life. Right. And he wasn't judgmental about it. It's not like, I mean, he respects a lot of the other actors that, that went on to do it. Um, but he knew it wasn't for him. Right. So you got to know what you're signing up for. Yes. Right. But, 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 but it was very bold. Then again, do you? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. try to think about those, even something else like Game of Thrones, for example. I mean, we've kind of seen those kids grow up almost before our eyes. Mm-hmm. And I, there's not a lot of shows that have run, you know, on like a seven, eight year, nine year right. span. And I'm thinking in particular, like the, the Stark girls, like Arya and Sansa. Mm hmm. I mean, they must have been nine or ten when the show started, yeah. and they're like 18, 19 at this point. Yeah, Maisie Williams. Yeah, she's. <laughs> I don't know of anything else she's done. Right. And she, I, she posted something I think on Instagram the other day, just kind of talking about it, and just like, yeah. you know, I'm ready to just <laughs> kind of hang out. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, Sophie Turner is it? She's going to be Phoenix. Yeah, she's already been in a. I guess at least the one movie, the the apocalypse movie. Was she in that one? Yeah, I didn't watch that one. Yeah, it was. Eh. The, I didn't bother with that one. Man. Yeah, it was. It was kind of disappointing, but it was kind of cool still to see some elements of it. <sighs> yeah, but yeah, definitely didn't live up to the hype. I got to be selective these days, right? There's so much in that genre, especially in that. And yeah, you know me. I'm a bit of a comic book oh, I same. was a comic book kid so you know it's a big part of my upbringing and absolutely and particularly for me X-Men especially I think that was mm-hmm. what I was most into when I was reading comics as a kid right. so there's kind of a special place in my heart for the X-Men and I don't think that the films have remotely lived up to, to that potential no well because they're not under the Marvel wing yet yeah they will be yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, right? Right, yeah, fingers crossed. Knock on wood. But uh, I guess that's a great segue, because um, I know last time we talked, mm-hmm. we're both fans of the show Legion. I'm interested. I'm not to, caught up. You're not caught up. No, okay. here's the thing. I made the mistake of starting the show with a friend of mine, ah. and he's much more busy than I am, so I'm watching them at his pace, which is far too fucking slow for me. And it's it's driving me nuts. Um, I want to catch up, so I'm many episodes behind. I think at least four or five at this point. But 
loving it. Uh, it's really <laughs> leveled up on on the what the fuck nature. Like I'm really trying to grasp the mythology as they're kind of presenting it of like what's what are the threads <laughs> of this world that are holding right. it together. Yeah. Um, and I'm not. I I feel like I'm failing at that. Right. But I'm fucking mesmerized every step of the way. Seriously, that the first episode of the second season blew me, blew my socks off. I right. was floored. And I was like, "Holy shit, this is, this is incredible." Right. Um, I don't want to color your. I, I won't say more as far as how the rest of the season turns out. What do you think? I still you, quite loved it, but yeah, it definitely not. De- definitely didn't quite keep at that that high note that it really what do you think of the fraud character the the shadow king the manifested ah uh, i mean i forget the actor david negrabon or something like that i mean yeah. he's phenomenal oh. he's phenomenal and just the Love and then watching. even what's his name jermaine clement as oliver yeah is fantastic as well yeah and that's the thing they have a lot it's a show with so many amazing components to it that they can throw it together so many different ways. And so I'm still, that's, and that's where I'm struggling right now. And, and I'm not disliking it. And that's a, it's, it's interesting. I've gotten to a place based on how much I've consumed that there are some things that I can appreciate while not liking them. And there are some things that I can like without fucking understanding them. (laughs) Legion is one of those things. I don't fully understand it yet, um, but I'm along for the ride and trusting it that it'll come together. That and it and Westworld were the two things that I was most excited about as Mm -hmm. far as TV, you know, around this time. And they both were very similar in terms of we had lots of unreliable narrator going on. We have lots of time jumping to where you don't, again, like you're saying, you don't know what the fuck, where are we? What time is it? What's, am, am mm-hmm. I real? Yeah. What's going on? Right. Uh, in both of those shows. And it was, they were, go, they were airing, you know, brand new at the same time. I think maybe Legion finished up like a week ahead of Westworld. Mm-hmm. But they, it was like a one, two punch on Sunday. It was Westworld. And then on, I think Tuesdays is when Tuesdays, Le- yeah. Legion was airing. And it was just like, I had no idea what was going on in either show. Uh I gave up on Westworld, to be truthful. So somewhere in the second season, I just stopped. Yeah. It it definitely was quite frustrating this year. Yeah. It didn't hook me. Last season, the pacing was an issue of that show. Really? And you could kind of see certain things coming as far as the reveal about the Jeffrey Wright character, as far as you knew what was going to happen in that final episode about the, the thing of the, the man in the black hat, all that stuff, you kind of knew where it was going. And they were just kind of dragging their feet and just fucking getting there. It was one of those series that I felt like if that season had been about three episodes shorter, it would have been a lot more satisfying. Yeah. See, for me, the first season, I mean, just blew, blew me away. I thought it was fantastic, mm-hmm. and it was my new favorite show. So going into season two, I was kind of thinking, there's no way they can top that first season. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to stick around and see what direction the story goes in. Mm-hmm. And it definitely still had a lot of high notes, but it had some lower. I think the lows in season two 
were much lower than the the lows in season one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it still had some crescendo moments that were just, you know, absolutely spectacular. But overall, it, going into the last episode, I still kind of had no idea what was happening or idea of what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that was in which in some ways is good because I think that's my thing is I like these shows that play around with these because otherwise it gets too predictable. It's like, if I can already, with with the, you know, the unreliable narrator and in terms of timelines and so forth, feels like maybe Westworld went too far in that direction Mm -hmm. to make it too undecipherable. But I do like being challenged and I'd rather kind of not understand exactly what's going on than be able to, you know what I mean? do like a paint by numbers plot you know what i mean on a on a like a network show for example yeah so um are you caught up on your netflix i i don't even have netflix anymore (laughs) so you're not caught up on the marvel shows i've caught my roommate does have it and has been watching luke cage a little bit yeah so i've caught a little bit season two so i was curious if you caught up on that i i haven't watched it all the way through yet all right did you like it? Um, for the most part, yeah. I thought it was really interesting, the character arc on it. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was uh, they brought back Iron Fist as a cameo <laughs> in a couple of episodes. That's funny. Um, one of the most shit-upon uh, <laughs> portrayals ever in Marvel, I feel like. Uh, Definitely. Poor, poor kind of cringy. What's his name? Uh, oh, yeah, that guy's career... But they, probably in trouble. <laughs> but they changed the personality of the character, so that was very interesting to me. That they recognized and they kind of even, interesting. They even have a scene between Luke and Danny where it's like Luke's saying, "There's something different about you." <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think they're trying to, to pave the way for people to give a second season a chance if they do one of Iron Fist. But uh, I found that very amusing. As soon as he showed up, I was like, okay, it was smart. I really liked the, uh, the first season up until they killed off the Marshala Ali character. Or was it? Marshala Ali. Ali. Yeah. Cottonmouth. Yeah. yeah. He was amazing. What mm. a great villain. But then they brought in the, I forget what the actor's name, but he was Candyman. Oh yeah. Yeah. Diamondback. Diamondback. That guy was just too, That's it was too was hammy. Necessary. Yeah. That was another season that could have been a few episodes shorter and yeah. been a lot more satisfying. I agree. Um, Second season, they focus on Mariah Stokes as the villain for the most part. And fucking A. (laughs) Alfre Woodard. Oh, she was. You could see that she had a lot of potential. Oh, my God. The complexities they gave her character were really fucking good. Really fucking good. One of the top uh, Marvel villains, I think, on screen. Nice. I think number one is Killmonger right now from Black Panther. Okay. Best motivation of any fucking villain. I wish they had introduced it earlier in the movie. I felt like it was so compelling. Yeah. I really wish they had spent more time developing his character because there was a lot of potential there. But they kind of just fast forwarded through a lot of his character development. Yeah. One One of the drawbacks of the Marvel movies going mainstream is that they have to give a certain amount of service to certain MacGuffins, right? 
So they have to set up the whole thing of vibranium and right. the importance of that or the Tesseract or all this shit. That's that the true. average, the non-comic person doesn't know of and really doesn't give a shit about. But the fanboys recognize it. Um, so I loved Black Panther. And my only criticism of Black Panther is that the stuff that I loved, I wanted so much more of. I wanted to be introduced to Wakanda so much more and earlier. They talk about Wakanda, but then it's like 15 minutes before you get there. That's true. You know, and I feel like, no, we want to fucking see Wakanda. And similarly, Killmonger, one of the most raw, real motivations for a villain ever, right? And they don't really like put that challenge in place of uh, how T'Chaka has experienced the world versus how Killmonger has experienced the world till the very end as he's about to die. Which was, that was beautiful. Fucking uh, beautiful death, death scene was amazing. Yeah. Um, it's also very interesting to me that in Marvel movies, the villain dies. It's very interesting to me. With very few exceptions. Ah, uh, that's a good point. Can you think of a villain that hasn't died in, a, in the course of a Marvel property? TV or movie. Yeah, because I'm thinking Hela from Thor Ragnarok. She died, right? Uh-huh. She was destroyed, yeah. Before that was Black, was Black Panther. The only one I can think of is um, Kingpin in Daredevil, the Daredevil series. That's the only one. Interesting. And I mean, Loki kind of stayed around. He was... That's true. Did end up dying eventually, but yeah. he was oh, around for a couple a of different. Yeah. He might be the. He's the only one that kind of stands out. And I think it's interesting. Ronan from yeah. Guardian of the Galaxies. He was dead. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the translation of from comic books to movie. In comic books, you're willing to live in a world where all these villains are just running rampant, but in movies, no, you need that come up and see can't doesn't make sense that they exist at the end of it after doing all this. That's true. Especially when you're tied into this grander arc. You know what I mean? That's got to be. Yeah, exactly. That kind of, you know what I mean? You're boxed in so much narratively in terms of where you can take things. Because like you're saying, you've got to tie in all of these, Mm -hmm. you know, larger theme or, you know, little Easter eggs or nuggets of exposition related to or how things tie together. So it's sometimes interesting, the obligations in the storytelling versus the inspirations in the storytelling that certain logistical things, like they can't have the villain survive the end, or they need to introduce certain aspects of the world in this particular way, these MacGuffins, uh, in order to tell the story is kind of interesting to me. But yeah, I feel like the Killmonger motivation could have appeared much earlier in that movie and just would have upped the ante so much. Right. Or spent if they had spent a little more time fleshing him out, mm-hmm. I felt like they left him very one dimensional until that death scene. You know what I mean? And they kind of even made him attack the female character to kind of like speed along. Okay, you're, this guy is clearly a bad guy. You know what I mean? They kind of did some things. Well, no, I mean I think the scene in the museum, he kind of established himself as being anti-appropriation and all this. So he kind of. S- set up a philosophy for his character in that scene and then it was what by the halfway point that we learned that he was related to to T'Chaka right yeah and so a rightful heir 
So, and that was an interesting dynamic. Um, and they started talking about, and that's what he started talking about, kind of releasing these weaponry to, to uh, all... Uh, all oppressed people, I believe. Yeah, all oppressed people. So, but still, I feel like, yeah, that monologue that happened at the end, I wanted to happen there and just really, well, because I love it when you have a relatable villain. That yeah, you don't exactly. agree I mean, with what they're doing, but you understand the motivations that are compelling that. To me, that's oftentimes it's the villain that makes the that is the key. Yeah. You know, almost going back to that Star Wars element of this mm-hmm. villain, like someone like a Darth Vader that has you know that has changed and is dynamic, right? And there's you know, there whenever you humanize them, yeah, and give them complexity. When you dare to make them relatable, right? As opposed to making them absurd to show that you don't, you clearly right. don't agree with. Sort of what like just doing. like Justice League. Did you, did you see Justice League at all? Uh, they I had f- Steppenwolf was the villain, and he was pretty one note. Oh yeah, and what was he about? I don't even. Right, yeah, he just wanted. I, fast I just wanted to destroy the world. That's. That's my motivation. I didn't watch it in the theaters. I watched it at home where I had a remote control in my hand. Um, and it was some, some scenes were just background while I was working on my computer. It was (laughs) just so fucking, oh, DC. What the fuck? Really? Yeah. What's happening? (laughs) We're going to have two Joker movies. That'll be. Yeah. What the fuck? Right. Joaquin Phoenix. Nobody wants either. (laughs) Nobody wants either. Ah. Oh my God. I'm curious to get your take on Thor Ragnarok, especially because they really took a, they really subverted that Mm -hmm. character and the style of movies that they were going for with Thor, right? Right, yeah. Because they added this whole meta humor. It was almost overwhelming, I thought. It was like, whoa, you, this is too meta for me. It swung too far the other way for me, yeah. too. And I have friends who disagree with me on this. But I was like, um, I think one of the things that Marvel movies, for the most part, do well are how they kind of balance the humor and the action and all that stuff. <clears throat> and I think that's always been the thing for Marvel versus DC. Why, as a kid, I gravitated towards Marvel? Because I was living in New York, and here's... You know, Spider-Man who lives in New York and here's X-Men who live in upstate New York and here's Daredevil who lives in Hell's Kitchen. You know, this is my... Yeah, it feels real. Yeah, if it gives it a lot more of a real quality. And so the movies kind of embrace that and especially with the use of humor. Um, But the director of Ragnarok... uh, 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 I think it's Taiku Watiti. Yes, Taiku Watiti. Swung way too far. And he played very much in his style, but the humor, like, distracted. Right. There's some things where the placement of the humor just was like, well, now you're just undercutting the tension as opposed to playing off of it. Or it's like, and I could see the joke coming also a lot of the time. And, uh, yeah, I did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. I enjoyed it more than the other. It was kind of one of my, still one of my favorite Marvel movies, but there were moments, I, and I, one that kind of comes to mind off the top of my head is they're watching a stage play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of 
Loki and I forget, was it Thor maybe? I can't yeah. remember. If Loki, Thor, and Odin. But it was, uh, and fucking, what's his name? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> as Loki. Yeah. And one of the Hemsworth brothers as, as uh, Thor. Ah, that's right. Yeah. And that was, so that was just incredibly meta there. That right. might have take kind of took me out of it to a little, to a degree. But that one was... Uh, it had the space to do that in that moment because here we are, we're watching this play and of course, fuck around within the play. I mean, we're not in the middle of a poignant plot <laughs> moment at this time, you know, so we can fuck around this a little bit. Um, but when they're in the middle of an escape from, you know, particular type of danger in the middle, they stop to tell the joke and then continue. It's just... I mean, for fuck's sake, come on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I like the play within a play. Because also, that's also very, you know, very Shakespearean to have the play within the play. That kind of tells you things. I'll catch a king. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and then, of course, the cameos were hysterical in that regards. Um, oh. <laughs> Comic book movies. Uh, Deadpool versus Deadpool 2. Did you see? I did. I liked Deadpool two just a little bit more, I think. Oh, but I don't know. I was I was hoping. I was kind of disappointed in the Cable portrayal, who is one of my favorite characters from the comic books, and I was expecting this particular story arc, and they didn't use it, so I was kind of bummed. Mm-hmm. But I did like it. I thought that the uh, the use of they had what's the movie? The song at the end. They did like an unplugged version of it. It was like "Aha" or something. Take take on me. Oh yeah, that was really hilarious. That I of course now I've been streaming that song ever since. Um, yeah, I was thinking cameo wise because there was that very brief cameo in uh, Deadpool two. Trying to think, I can't. I feel like I'm missing something. Um. I'm I'm blanking on the character's name. It was in X Force, the guy who was invisible the whole time until. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. I gotcha. Yeah. That oh yeah, that was ridiculous. Um, another ocean's. Oh yeah, stuff. which was uh, supposedly was no was it Brad, Brad, Brad Pitt? Pitt? Yeah. yeah okay. It was. Um, but where was it going? Uh, I didn't care too much for that movie. Yeah, I mean, I liked the first one a lot. Because it was a very fresh take on superheroes, on superhero movies, on all the things that are ridiculous about superhero movies. And they didn't do that in the second one. He had this whole big emotional catalyst at the I guess beginning. And I'm not saying you shouldn't kill off the Marina Baccarin character. I mean, if you want to fucking do that, sure. But what's the Deadpool take on doing that? Because that's such a trope right? of killing the significant other to be this catalyst for growing, right? That's such a fucking trope. And I feel like Deadpool would approach that completely different. Especially, here's, here's, my, here's my suggestion <laughs> of a way that could have gone with it. Imagine, if you will... The girlfriend dies, but Deadpool, who realizes he's in a comic book, I mean, that's the whole thing. He doesn't take any of it seriously because he realizes he's in a fucking comic book. In comic books, people come back from the dead all the fucking time. I imagine Deadpool just kind of 
playing that card over. Okay. When's she coming back from the dead? She back from the dead yet? Ah, I like that angle. Right. And that would totally play into how he fucking acknowledges and skews tropes and still serves as a motivation for the character to move forward. Like, okay, well maybe if I put, push the plot in this way and that way, then she's going to come back, you know, the big reveal, you know, just constantly expecting the big reveal and not getting it. Uh, okay. I like it. Right. Yeah, that that's a good fits one. more the world that was set up in Deadpool. Makes sense. But you know, Marvel didn't ask me. <laughs> Sorry. People I know walking by the window. <laughs> so great. See, I was expecting there's this great arc uh, because I knew that this was going to be a vehicle to set up the X-Force mm-hmm. team or whatever. And <laughs> yes allegedly right allegedly and so i was expecting okay so there's a um uncanny x-force run Mm -hmm. that is where x-force it's like the team is amazing it's like uh deadpool and it's phantom x and it's wolverine psylocke archangel Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe one or two other characters that i'm sort of forgetting and they there's an arc where they find apocalypse is this child and they're you know in order to save the world they've got to kill this assassinate this child and that's sort of the tension of it so i was expecting maybe cable like the young kid was supposed to be this apocalypse Mm -hmm. youth that was going to be getting killed or something and that was going to be the tension of the film was you know cable trying to kill him and deadpool saving him and that would be sort of the conflict there mm-hmm. so i was kind of bummed that they they left that that arc untouched right yeah and the whole cable twist at the end yeah not a fan yeah I, I didn't care for that either but still one of my favorite characters of all time in the books or the movies? in the books yeah. yeah the movie yeah i mean i like josh brolin he's good even the makeup, you know what I mean? It's funny even that they referenced the arm compared mm-hmm. to Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you probably shouldn't have done that because in comparison, this looks really shitty. Yes. <laughs> the makeup wasn't there. Yeah, they don't have the same budget. For sure. I guess. And it was a bummer. I was I was actually excited about Shatterstar. Oh, Shatterstar. And then he gets eviscerated, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking love Domino. Oh, yeah. Zazzy Beats. She, she was fantastic. Shout out to Zazzy Beats. She was awesome. Wanted to have her own movie. She was the only part of Deadpool that I really liked. That was really, really brilliantly enjoyed. done. That was really clever. Uh, Very clever. She, oh my God. Such great uh, presence in that movie. Just loved watching her. But uh, what else story-wise have you been into? Is there anything new? Have you been reading anything? Oh, God. I wish I'd been reading. I don't read very much. I get easily distracted. I've fallen off, too. Um, I read graphic novels from time to yeah. time, so I keep up with, like, Saga. And I just picked up Paper Girls, which is Brian K. Bong, which I'm uh, enjoying. I just started that. Uh, but other than that, no, not reading. Uh, I consume a lot of television. A lot of television. There's a lot of really good television out right now. It's a shame you don't get Netflix. A lot of it's on Netflix. Dear White People. Great oh, yeah. You mentioned show. that last time. Yeah. Just watched second season. Loved it even more. Uh, Glow, watching second season. Loving it. 
um, Atlanta. That's one that I really feel like I need to check out because I yeah. still haven't. Yeah. And if you're getting the HBO, you got to watch Barry. Barry. Okay. With Bill Hader. I definitely, I watched the first several episodes and was pretty much enjoying it. Yeah. yeah. I love the Ukrainian kind of guys. <laughs> so great. The bald, the bald guy, especially. Yeah. The that, same guy who plays Zax and uh, Gotham, a show I gave up on because DC has trouble doing TV as well. Um, so yeah, one of the best comedic performances definitely of the year is that, that actor. Wish I remember his name. Not good with names. He's definitely been in something else that I've seen aside from that, but and Gotham, yeah. Some, there's something else that I know him from. I just can't place him at the moment. Yeah, such a particular face, and I could forget it. Right, he's got such a look. It's so it's great seeing him do comedy. Just yeah, I'm always uh, impressed when people are able to break type like that. Let's see who else is in that. Henry Winkler. Yeah, he's wonderful. And then uh, Barry's, what's the guy's name, the actors? Is it Stephen Root? Oh, yeah, Stephen Root, his handler, who's always been brilliant. Oh, yeah, going back to news radio. Yeah, news radio, uh, King of the Hill, uh, Office Space, brilliant comedian. Uh, Yeah. Actually, last week I just, I've been doing some series of film reviews with a friend of mine who kind of does some, screenwriting on the side mm-hmm. we've been going back and forth so like from our top five movies of all time so oh. i'll do my my number five then he does his number five then my number four bah, 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 bouncing back and forth and we just did no country for old men last weekend oh which is what number on whose list that, number two on my list really and no a country oh yeah and oh. steven root has a small role yeah it's pretty well done yeah <laughs> And so you haven't revealed your number one, so you can't tell me what your number uh, one is. I can tell you what my number I think we've talked about it. It's uh, on, on the previous movie shows, uh, The Thin Red Line. Oh. <laughs> okay. How often do people have... Uh, oh, I'm thinking Thin Blue Line. I was thinking the documentary Thin Blue Line. No, Thin Red Line, uh, Terrence Malick. Yeah. Oh. I wonder how many people have that movie as <laughs> their number one of all time. Probably not that many. I, it's funny about that movie, too, because when I... F- I think I was probably a, a sophomore in high school when it came out. And I remember seeing it. I was expecting that because it was the same year that Saving Private Ryan came out. Mm-hmm. So kind of expecting, okay, this more action-oriented movie at the time, not even being aware of what of who Terrence Malick was, essentially. So I went in with this totally different expectation and it was kind of underwhelmed. But then every subsequent time that I saw it, I was like, okay, I'm starting to get this every time until I really got it and then became obsessed with it, and now it's my favorite movie of all time. How many times would you say you've seen it? Uh, probably at least 15, 20 times, somewhere in wow. there. See, that for, that does not strike me as a repeat viewing kind <laughs> of movie, at least not to that degree. It's a great movie. I've only seen it a couple of times myself. Um, but yeah, there's certain movies that I don't feel the need to go back to. That's, uh, yeah, that would be one. For me, it's more like the, um, the Darren Aronofsky stuff. I can, those are the films that I can't, I can only watch once a decade because they're so. Or Lars von Trier. Yeah. That, 
<laughs> once and done. Right. That, that's it. I don't. I don't need to see Breaking the Waves again. That's, that was just too heart wrenching the first time. Or um, Dancer in the Dark. Or you know, with Bjork. Oh, with Bjork. Uh, but yeah, similarly, Requiem for a Dream. That's Ooh, a hard seriously. fucking movie to watch. Ooh, it's brutal. Ooh. <laughs> <sighs> And especially nowadays. I mean, now I need my movies to be a little bit more escapist <laughs> right, than usual. Syrupy. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. There's some movies that I really wanted to watch, like Detroit, which had such amazing reviews about it. But it was like, no, this is too close to shit happening in the world that we're watching in real time. And I was like, I can't. I've somewhere it's on the list of movies that when I'm feeling better, I need to <laughs> get around to watch because I'm sure it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking. But right now, it's like, oh, I can't. I can't do this right now. Yeah, it was funny in the in the course of doing these films. You know, all of mine are pretty dark, brooding, uh-huh. nihilistic <laughs> sort like of. You. Yeah, exactly. Because I had oh, let's see, my number five. I think I had done like Blade yep. Runner. Uh-huh. No Country for Old Men, um, Amores Perros. Have you ever? Okay, sure. Uh, so that was three. I'm trying to think what the other one was. Uh, oh, it was The Prestige. Oh. So all pretty dark, dour films. And then my, <laughs> so the guy that I would have been doing one with, he was like, well, we're, we're going to do uh, Groundhog Day this time, <laughs> which was like a total shift. Well, kind of a total shift in a different direction. It's a great movie. But still fun. Yeah, just brilliantly done movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of Michael Shannon's earliest roles. I know, right? That was what a nice hilarious when I, rem- I was like, holy shit, that's Michael Shannon. Re- I n- had never noticed. Yeah, and I hope... A young know. Michael Shannon. Yes. I was like, I thought that guy was born like 50 years old or something. <laughs> yeah, and only played hard asses, but no, very different. Um, yeah, my top movies are like Amelie okay. and Royal Tenenbaums and Dr. Strangelove. And um, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I love fucking epics. Okay. I love the epic storytelling. Munchausen. Did uh, Terry Gilliam do Munchausen, right? Yeah, Terry Gilliam did Munchausen. Um, it's my favorite movie about storytelling. Have you seen it? You haven't seen I it. I have not seen it. It's the best movie about storytelling. But ever. I definitely like... I, that and Big Fish. I like Gilliam's style for sure. It's always this kind of, there's something interesting about what he does. Yeah, and especially, he really plays with transitions because they transition from the characters to the stories they're telling and back again. Uh, And he kind of uses that to his advantage later on because you're, you're having trouble discerning as you go along, which is which. Uh, to a certain degree. And so, yeah, just for the transition, all elements, I would recommend Ad- Adventures of Baron Munchausen, as well as fucking stellar cast and performances and all this stuff. Eric Idle and Robin Williams and Uma Thurman and, um, yeah, Oliver Reed. Oh. That's interesting because I'm thinking about immediately going to the Fisher King also, which sort of has an sort of yeah yeah epic storytelling element to it yeah well gilliam loves his mythology he loves tapping into that and then dr parnassus as well that was yeah yeah he likes scope you know he likes scale 
I appreciate that uh, about Gilliam's work when it works best, like Brazil and Time Bandits. He's really playing with scale to a certain degree. Uh, and sometimes on a relatively shoestring budget. It's amazing what he accomplishes with the budgets that he's had. So, yeah, It's disappointing that the uh, Don Quixote film he's been trying to make for like a decade is apparently finally kaput. I thought he made it. I don't. I heard Recently it. He it was like it back with, on, but then it was off or something. Something happened. <laughs> I thought he had put it together. He filmed it with Adam Driver. Interesting. In Maybe place, I, in place of uh, Johnny Depp. I saw a trailer. Oh, you did. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm you totally conflating. For the trailer. <laughs> I'll have to check it out because I thought I had heard that it was kind of back, finally getting back on, and then at the end something happened. Yeah. No, but uh, I think something did happen, but I'm pretty sure he shot it, but I don't know. Interesting. I have to go. I have to Google it. Yeah. And then based on your Google results, decide <laughs> to just edit all of this out. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So we look smarter. <laughs> but it uh, looks like we're right up against our time here, so I don't want to keep you any longer than necessary. Okay. Anything else you want to maybe plug about the festival that's coming up or any shows or anything? Before, no, before just we... come out, uh, come check out outofboundscomedy.com. Find out about all the shows, all the guest acts that were coming are uh, coming in. 500 plus performers, at least half of which are coming from out of town. So it's a great way to see comedy done different ways. And then look for a slash fiction salon on <laughs> Facebook. We'll be setting up a page soon in regards to that with announcements as to the shows and the genres that we will be tackling. Yeah, I have to check that out. Yeah. There's some pretty, there's so much ground, I think, there. Oh, I'm yeah. thinking of like, Picard saying engage. <laughs> yeah. Number two. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. But Asa, thanks again for uh, for joining me. Uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off for this week, guys. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Cooper. <laughs>